You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 428 of this podcast. Today is Sunday. July 10th, 2022, and the subject of today's podcast is a book that I finished (laughs) reluctantly, I will admit, and I'll explain more what I mean by that as we go along, but The Other Half of Church by Michael Hendricks and E. James Wilder, it was a little bit of an effort to get through. And I have some thoughts, some observations, some caveats to include. But first of all, before we get into all that, I think I have some exciting news. At the minimum, it's exciting to me. I don't know if it'll be exciting to you, but it's exciting to me. Yesterday morning, I ordered a new desk for myself. Now, When I explain why I did that, you might think that was a little bit selfish of me. You might. And maybe it was a little bit selfish of me. I hope not. I don't think it was, but we'll see. So my wife, to back up, give you a little bit of the context here, she asked me the other day what I would think of us moving the computer desks out of what we still call the library, even though we really don't have any books in it anymore. It was where we had all of our bookshelves when we first moved in. And really for the first two years that we lived here, that's where the books were. And then at a certain point, especially with taking this job, we decided it would make a lot of sense to move the books upstairs to my home office because I was working from home, and to move the computers that my wife and kids use for school, for sewing, for playing games, down to what we were previously calling the library. And that's where they've been for the past seven months or so. And that's also now the room that my wife does her sewing in. She sets up her sewing machines on a second dining room table that we've got. We've essentially got two dining rooms, if you want to think of it that way. We primarily eat in the one that we call our dining room. And then the other one is overflow when we have guests on the holidays, birthdays. We have another family over. Typically, we'll have the adults eat in that secondary dining room. And then the kids can eat in the primary dining room on the other side of the kitchen. But my wife does her sewing in there the rest of the time. And she'll usually have her sewing projects and school planning and miscellaneous sundry things laid out on the table. But with that being also the room that the kids are playing on the computer at, uh, or in rather, or being the room where the kids will do their schoolwork, it's uh, a little bit crowded. There's a little bit of excess there in terms of population density for our home. And so she wanted to move the computers that were in that room into the sitting room. Now, the problem there, as I saw it, was that our sitting room 
is intentionally devoid of screens. Now, that isn't to say we can't take a screen in there. If you've got a portable handheld device, your phone, Kindle, the Oculus Quest 2. But it is to say, I really would rather us not set up a computer in there or a TV in there because I want us to keep that room for having conversation. When we have people stop in, if they want to sit down right there in our entryway, our sitting room, we can have conversation, ask how life is going, talk with them about uh, whatever it is that comes up. And so she asked me what I thought, and I said, I just don't know that that's ideal. And what if we move these two computers into the other dining room and move the shoe bench out of the way in there? And ah, lo and behold, yep, that'll work. We'll put those there. That'll definitely change up the workflow and the way that the main floor feels, which is kind of nice. It refreshes your perspective every now and then to rethink the way that you're using spaces and furniture and are you being task specific uh, in the way that you plan out your house. Also, that's where our big whiteboard is. Also, that's where a lot of the posters that the kids have for school are. And so that works out. That works out well. So we moved the computers over there, moved the table to the other side of the room in what we still are going to call the library, I suppose. And then we got to thinking, because we've been talking here lately about this upcoming school year and how last year, thanks to My Tech High, we ended up building a computer specifically for the kids to use for school. And also the building of the computer itself was a computer science class because we were able to talk about what the various components were. We built it piece by piece, component by component. All of the kids over the age of John helped. And if we build another one this coming school year, we've got to figure out where to put it. Now, a couple options are available. One is we just get another desk like the two that we have downstairs. Fairly narrow, compact, um, you know, not a whole lot of room there for additional desks, but we could maybe fit another one in depending on where we put things. Might have to rearrange some more. But another option, an additional option, which might solve some other problems or challenges would be to, when we get another computer built for the kids for school, put that one on one of the two smaller desks that we already have, and then get a bigger desk for my wife so that she can lay out books for school planning. She can lay out patterns for sewing. She can maybe put a sewing machine on the desk right next to her computer so that she can have her computer right there next to the sewing machine in case she needs to reference anything, go back and forth, watch something, listen to something on the computer while she's sewing. So then I start looking on her behalf on Facebook Marketplace for some used desks in our area. If you can save a little bit of money going with a used option, great. Now, the problem I ran into was that a lot of the desks that are available or that were available on Facebook Marketplace just weren't quite what we're looking for. Not quite going to be good 
for all of the above of what I just described. But funny thing, I saw a desk that's pretty much exactly what I have in my office. Glass top, metal frame, L-shaped, same size. And so I asked my wife, I said, hey, this one's 20 bucks here in Greeley. It looks like it's in good shape. What do you think? Yeah, no, that sounds good. So she was agreeable to that. I messaged the lady who's selling it and it's gone. It's already sold, which is disappointing. That was a bummer. So then I see another one that's very similar, a little bit different because it's got a built-in shelf on the side and it's also kind of tinted. The glass is tinted instead of clear like the other two desks we've got downstairs or uh, in the case of my desk upstairs, it's got kind of a smoky sort of a look to it, frosted look to it. You know, this one being tinted, wouldn't quite match either scheme. And so I messaged the lady, but I really wasn't super thrilled about that desk option because it has the built-in shelf on the side, which makes it a little bit bigger. We're kind of constrained as far as how much space we've got. And also she was wanting more money. She was wanting 95. Now I did message her before I decided to go a different route. And I said, hey, would you take 75? And she ended up saying, sure, after I had made other arrangements. But nevertheless, I get to talking with my wife and I'm looking online just in case this lady ends up telling me, uh, no, it's already sold. And I start looking for other desks. Actually, it started out me, you know, looking on Amazon, started out with me trying to find this desk that the second lady on Facebook Marketplace was selling just to see what it originally cost. Maybe it's a higher quality desk, even though it looks very similar. It does have a second drawer. It does have the built-in shelf. Maybe we get that. And then I put that up in my office and then I give Lauren my desk or something. In any event, at least I'll have a better idea of whether the price she's asking is a discount sufficiently for it being a used desk. While I'm on not Facebook Marketplace, but uh, Amazon. While I'm on Amazon and I am looking for a desk like the one I'm seeing on Facebook Marketplace and waiting for the lady to get back with me, I happen to see an L-shaped desk, very similar in size to the one that I have, which has served me very, very well. We've had it for 10 years. Lauren bought it for me for Christmas when we first moved to Montana and it's been moved around a lot and it's in really good shape and it's held up and I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, here just a few months ago, I added some led lights to where it's got a little extra flare as far as the under lighting through the glass, which I think is cool. But one thing with this new job working from home so much doing systems integration work, seven days straight, 12 hour days. Then also on my days off, I'm also sitting at my desk. I'm also recording podcasts. I'm also writing. I'm also doing research. So I sit at this desk a lot. I spend a lot of time at this desk, whether for my main occupation or for my side gigs, my side hustles, 
And it really does wear on you at a certain point to sit so much at a desk. And when it is what you do for a living and also what you're passionate about requires that you sit at a desk, at a certain point, you just you, you get a little bit grumpy because you're not feeling so great because it's not healthy to sit so much. You, you need to get up and move around and get active and do work. And so I do. I'll get up, especially if I've been working a lot and sitting a lot at my desk. I am actually excited to have laundry to fold. I'm excited to have some tidying up to do on our second floor. I'm excited to vacuum. I'm excited to organize and tidy up a dresser or a countertop or what have you. I'm excited to go and make the bed. But it's not enough. It's not enough being active to be healthy. And so then I'm looking through Amazon and I see one of these standing desks, you know, with a adjustable level, little hydraulic pistons in the legs that hold up the desktop and a little controller there. You press up and down buttons and you've got three presets and you can raise and lower the desk. If you want to raise it up, you can stand at it and work. If you want to lower it down, you can sit at it and work. If you want it just a little bit higher for when you're sitting, because your height is such and such, even while you're sitting, then you can make those adjustments. And it's not theoretical. It's not hypothetical. I have seen others in my line of work or similar lines of work in automation, INE controls, have these kinds of desks. And it makes a big difference. It really does on back strain, circulation, digestive, health, metabolism, mood, concentration, productivity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I had one actually at my previous job. I was given the option to order some new furniture. I went online and I ordered a custom Evo desk that was just great. It was fantastic. And probably also really upset some people. Uh, But it was great. Even so, it's worth it. Hashtag worth it. So I'm thinking though, yeah, someday, someday I would like to get one. And also they're expensive. I don't want to, I don't want to spend, uh, I can't in good conscience spend as much on a desk for myself at home as what the one that I had at work cost. And of course I didn't take it with me when I left. It's still there. So they're getting the benefit out of it for sure, for sure. But then I'm scrolling through Amazon and I see one and it was just a little over 500 bucks. And so then my wheels start turning. I'm like, wow, 500 bucks. Like, mm, It's got pretty good reviews. It looks like it's in, you know, sufficiently sturdy construction that it would hold up and it looks attractive and it's about the same size as the one that I've got. And it's an L shaped desk, which I like. You can have things right next to you on the side and you can have things in front of you, like your screens, monitors, speakers. It's great. So long story short, I ended up ordering that after talking with my wife. Hey, what do you think? Here's my reasoning. I order this desk for me. You can have my desk. It's served me very well. I think it would serve you very well as well. 
it would improve my mood, it would improve my health, I think it would make me more productive and happier, which means we would all be happier. <laughs> Plus you get my desk. She was agreeable to that. And like I say, maybe that's selfish of me. We started off talking about getting her a new desk. And by the end of it, I'm getting a new desk. And then she's getting my old desk. But she doesn't sit as much uh, as I do. I spend a lot of time sitting. And for all of our sake, I have to be a good steward of my physical health, mental health, emotional health, spiritual health, so that I can serve my family well, so that I can serve the good Lord well. I think this will be a force multiplier. And if I haven't bought myself a new desk in 10 years, uh, $500 for a desk, thereabouts, uh, if it lasts me another 10 years or more, you know, we're talking $50 a year. And it's arguably, after my computer, it's arguably uh, the biggest, most important tool in my toolbox, whether we're talking systems integration work or blogging or podcasting or writing books, etc., etc. So there you have it. I ordered that. It should be here in a week. I'm very excited about it. And I think that will make for a better me moving forward. I think it was a good choice. As for the meat and potatoes of the book, enough stalling, Garrett. Get down to it. <laughs> the other half of church. <clears throat> Why did I read it? And to be clear, I like I said, I was not a huge fan. I gave it two out of five stars. <clears throat> it, uh, you know, it, it goes like this, right? Five stars. This is one of the best books I've ever read. Maybe within its category with qualifiers, but this is a really good book. Four stars. Really good, but I can think of some ways in which I wish it had been better. You know, five stars is great. This is a great book. Four stars. It was good. It was really good, even. I think it could have been better. Three, for a book to be a three-star for me, I am probably saying that it was okay, right? It was okay. I liked it. I wouldn't necessarily go recommending it to everybody. I learned some things. I was challenged. It was okay. Two stars, uh, I didn't like it. One star, I hated it. Two stars, I didn't like it, and I've got more issues with it than uh, good that I can say about it. And unfortunately, even though the premise is interesting here, I would give this two stars. I think there are not just more, but more significant concerns with the content here than I see potential for benefit. In other words, doing the cost-benefit analysis, yes, we can think on the positives of what they're trying to accomplish with the book, uh, but we should not only think of the positives, we should also think of the potential for this to be misconstrued or to have unintended consequences, and what is the likelihood of those unintended consequences is also a factor to my mind, I think the likelihood is very high that negative unintended consequences. And I do say unintended because I don't think the authors are 
trying to write a book that would do more harm than good. But let's read the Goodreads book summary, and I'll explain more what I mean after that and the author summaries. And I quote, why does true Christian transformation seem fleeting? And why does church often feel lonely, Christian community shallow, and leaders untrustworthy? For many Christians, the delight of encountering Christ eventually dwindles and disappointment sets in. Is lasting joy possible? These are some of the questions Michael Hendricks has considered, both in his experience as a spiritual formation pastor and in his lifetime as a Christian. He began to find answers when he met Jim Wilder, a neurotheologian. Using brain science, Wilder identified that there are two halves of the church, the rational half and the relational half. And when Christians only embrace the rational half, churches become unhealthy places where transformation doesn't last and narcissistic leaders flourish. In the other half of church, join Michael and Jim's journey as they couple brain science with the Bible to identify how to overcome spiritual stagnation by living a full-brained faith. You'll also learn the four ingredients necessary to develop and maintain a vibrant transformational community where spiritual formation occurs, relationships flourish, and the toxic spread of narcissism is eradicated. A little bit about the two authors. Michael Hendricks has been a pastor, missionary, inventor, and author. He has been teaching and training for over 25 years. He is a former pastor of spiritual formation at Flatirons Community Church in Lafayette, Colorado. In addition, he served and trained people in Argentina, Mexico, Kenya, South Sudan, and Uganda. Michael earned a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and computer science from the University of Colorado in Boulder. He earned an MDiv degree from Denver Seminary. He is married to Claudia, and they have three adult children. That is the Google Books author summary, I should make clear. I couldn't find anything about him on Goodreads. I scrolled down to check it out, copy-pasted into my outline for this episode, and it was just his name, and he's got one follower on Goodreads. And I'm like, ah, okay. Google, I choose you. Also, similarly, with the other author, Dr. Jim Wilder, I had to do a little bit of sleuthing, and I found the website for lifemodelworks.org, and his bio on there reads as follows. Dr. Jim Wilder has been training leaders and counselors for over 30 years on five continents. It's almost all of them. Wow. Jim grew up in South America and is bilingual, English and Spanish. Go figure. He's the author of 19 books with a strong focus on maturity and relational skills. His co-authored book, Living from the Heart, Jesus Gave You, has sold over 100,000 copies and is printed in 11 languages. Wilder has published numerous articles and developed four sets of video and relational leadership training. Dr. Wilder has served as a guest lecturer at Fuller Seminary, Biola, Talbot Seminary, Point Loma University, Montreat College, 
Tyndale Seminary, and elsewhere. Dr. Jim Wilder has extensive clinical counseling experience and is the chief neurotheologian of Life Model Works, a nonprofit working at the intersection of theology and brain science. Life Model Works builds on the 50-year legacy of Shepherd's House, which began in the 1970s as a ministry to street kids in Van Nuys, California. In those early days, Jim worked with the team of volunteer counselors and Fuller Seminary faculty to build a counseling center to help broken people recover from negative habits, addictions, abuse, and trauma. By the 1990s, Jim was assistant director and later executive director of Shepherd's House, helping hundreds of pastors and churches with their toughest counseling cases. Jim was intimately involved in 1987 when Shepherd's House conducted a careful review of why some people with the same level of trauma and treatment recovered, but others did not. The results of this case-by-case study became the LIFE model, a new recovering model. The LIFE model study findings were published in Living from the Heart, Jesus Gave You. So, there you have it. There you have it. Certainly in the case of that second one coming from the website for the organization that they operate together. You have it in his own words. This is who he is. This is what he's about. Michael Hendricks really owes a lot to Jim Wilder in his own words, uh, as he says, as he tells it in the other half of church. And so I think the lion's share of the credit or blame, as the case may be, goes to Jim Wilder for the way that this is pitched. And what I mean by that is without ill will, without trying to be a stick in the mud, I think that the mixing of theology and brain science here is not careful enough. What I mean is, I think that mixing these two things in together runs the risk of tainting theology in an unhelpful way. I think, for one thing, let's suppose your theology should be such and such, according to the scriptures, and someone comes along with a very impressive resume, which both of these men have. They've been all over the world. They've been in positions of leadership and authority, and they have credibility. They have degrees. They have all these places to list where they've been invited to speak and to hold forth and to influence. And they tell you not just that your theology might be off kilter, but that the way your theology should be modified is according to the latest brain science. So then let's suppose hypothetically you modify, you overhaul your theology. You overhaul your reading of the scripture. You overhaul your doctrine of God. You overhaul your doctrine of the church. You overhaul your family life, everything, absolutely everything. As much according to the reputation of these men and what the latest brain science is as from what the scriptures actually say. All the while you say, ah, these men have really unlocked what the Bible was saying all along. But what you have is something kind of like a new revelation, which is being tacked on. 
And if the neuroscience doesn't ever change, I think it's still problematic. But imagine a scenario in which you overhaul your theology and your anthropology and your approach to relationships and work and life, and you call that Christianity, and then the brain science changes again. What then? If the brain science changes again, what is to make of your previous mixing in of the former brain science, what was the best, latest in brain science, with your Christian faith, with the scriptures? And this is where sola scriptura should be distinguished, as Matthew Barrett helpfully distinguishes it in his two books I read recently, None Greater and Simply Trinity. Sola Scriptura is not to be confused with solo scriptura. So what I'm not saying is that neuroscience is too dangerous for us to talk about or consider or learn anything from. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is if we mix in brain science in an uncareful way with our theology, we don't necessarily come away with better theology. And also, too, we may sanctify our brain science in a way that would be deleterious to our testimony when, and I say when because I don't think it's if, I think it's when the brain science changes. Here's something that was on my mind as I was reading this. Every time I have read anything at all about neuroscience, which is not often, but occasionally I do read something on neuroscience, brain science. Everything that I've read has said up front, there is far more that we don't understand about how the brain works, really truly. There's far more that we don't understand than there is that we do. And that's refreshing, right? That is a refreshing admission that I wish were present in every science. But neuroscience seems almost especially to be marked by caveats like that and cautions like that, where there's a promise on the front end and also a little bit of a sheepish admission and confession that, hey, you know, we think this is how this works. We think this is what it is, but we're still trying to figure it out. So bear with us, right? In light of so many such qualifiers I have heard about brain science over the years, it seems to me as though the brain science will change. And if we have super glued our theology to our brain science as it stands right now, what happens when we've got to leave this brain science in favor of some better updated brain science? I don't think that it will improve our testimony if we're not careful, if we are over hasty, over eager to supercharge our recommendations. And what do I mean by that? So what I mean is a criticism that's often leveled at creationists is that we are trying to mix science with regards to our origins. We're trying to mix science in too much with the Christian message. And that as such, we're coming from a position of insecurity, perhaps, about our Christian faith. 
So in other words, we're worried that people won't embrace our Christian faith if we can't demonstrate that it is scientific. In that case, if that is where we're coming from, you run the risk of people actually keeping their faith in science and then regarding the triune God as a kind of lesser deity in a pantheon, where science, per se, is enthroned above the Most High God. See, this is where I think I'm trying to explain in recent episodes some things I've learned in the past several months about how theology used to be, used to be for hundreds of years, the queen of the sciences. And given the fact that that is not the case anymore, we do well to question when we are inclined to mix in theology with the other physical sciences, we do well to question whether we are putting carts before horses. Have we kept the physical sciences in the place of chief importance in our minds and relegated theology to a lesser status, to where really theology can only speak when spoken to by the other sciences. I I think so. I, I think that's a big worry that I have, and I think that that is at least a hazard here based on how the subjects have been treated together. And it doesn't have to be that way. I don't think it has to be that way. I don't think it's necessary for it to be that way. I think it is that way in this book, in this work. That's why I didn't really love it. I didn't really care for it. But I think another concern that I've got is similar to when people talk about futurism and transhumanism and adding bionic parts to our bodies. You know, let's say they come out with a replacement eyeball. And this replacement eyeball can give me all kinds of great readouts on the weather and stock prices and the news and all kinds of really great augmented reality overlays for things that I'm seeing in the real world. You know, almost like Iron Man's helmet. Give me the stats on this thing that I'm looking at. Jarvis, Uh, except with transhumanism, we're not talking about something you put on and can take off. We're talking about something that is being replaced. Like for instance, the uh, core that Tony Stark has in the Marvel movies, you know, we're talking about something being installed into your body. Like hardware was not up to snuff. The hardware that God gave you was not up to snuff, and so you need new hardware. Now, in some cases, I have no objections to this at all. Like, for instance, in the coming weeks and months, my wife is going to be talking with an orthopedic surgeon here in Greeley who comes highly recommended by a nurse we know who's worked with him. And my wife is going to be seeing if a knee replacement might be in the cards, actually a double knee replacement might be in the cards because her knees are shot. The cartilage is not good and that makes it hard for her to get up and down the stairs or impossible for her to run. It makes it difficult to bend or kneel or 
do a lot of exercises that most people just don't even think about. Or if they think about it, they, they don't like doing them because they're lazy, not because it really, really hurts because there's no cartilage and it's bone on bone, right? So what's a knee replacement? Well, you're, you're replacing some of the hardware in your body because it's wore out or it's not working properly. Do I have a problem with that? No, right? If it's broke, but if it ain't broke, then going in and swapping things out because you want upgrades, I, that I just, I feel like I'm not comfortable with. I, I feel like it's too risky. And also there's an inherent discontentedness, which we are embracing, which is not in and of itself the problem where the expression of it's concerned but it is in and of itself the problem where the attitude is willing to accept certain risks and expenses and costs without ever really dealing with the underlying attitude towards God. So for instance, last night I commented on something that I saw on Facebook, which will probably not get replied to, and I probably upset some people, and that wasn't my intention, but neither do I think it's a fantastic reason to not say anything just because people aren't used to thinking along those lines and they're going to feel threatened and they're going to be upset uh, because I just made them think. Someone I know from church posted something to Facebook about how many more men, what percentage rise in vasectomies we're seeing now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned by the Supreme Court. Urologists are seeing just a ridiculous increase in appointments for vasectomies. And the troubling thing about that is (laughs) when tied to Roe v. Wade being overturned, it's a kind of, (laughs) dare I say it, it's a kind of admission that If you didn't get a vasectomy before now, but all of a sudden you're in a hurry to, you were banking on abortion. You were, you were banking as a stopgap. If you got a a woman pregnant and odds are high, if you got a woman who wasn't your wife, if you're married, or even if you're single, if you got some woman pregnant and you didn't want the kid, you were banking on abortion being available and an option. And now that it's not you're going to go and get an elective surgery to remove your body's God-given ability to fertilize an egg. That's really what it boils down to. Brass tacks. Brass tacks. You're going to remove your body's ability, God-given ability, men, to be able to fertilize an egg because you don't want children, because you don't want to take care of children. You don't want to be responsible for a child, whether you have any or you don't. And so I weighed in. I commented and probably ruffled feathers based on what I was seeing other people comment. And I said, you know, really, here's an honest question. What is the difference? How many degrees of difference are there from vasectomies to men and women getting gender reassignment surgery. And what I'm not saying, I'm not saying they're one and the same thing, okay? I'm not saying that for a man to 
get a vasectomy is the same thing as him getting a sex change. But in a sense, in a sense, aren't both choices motivated by very similar root sentiments, beliefs, attitudes? Namely, it's my body, my choice. Namely, I'm not content with the way that my body either looks or works by God's design. And again, it's not broke, but if we think that it's broke and that we're fixing it, and that's actually the language that's used when we're talking about animals, we're going to get them fixed, which means we're going to get them spayed or neutered, depending on if they're a male or a female. You know, to say that we're getting ourselves fixed is to say that we were broken. No, you've got it backwards. You weren't broken and you are having someone intentionally, very carefully break you in just the right place so that the woman you are with or women won't become pregnant, won't be with child after being with you. And I just think that that is, I think that is not bueno. And I think that is, I I think that is also related. I think this is adjacent to what is distasteful to me about the other half of church. The science comes in and opens up these new possibilities. And then all of a sudden we start acting as though the scriptures have been inadequate all this time. And now, now like the Gnostics, we've got this special knowledge compared with 2000 years of Christians before us. And in some sense, we claim a superiority to all of them because we know what we're doing and they didn't. Or if someone declines the elective procedure because they're worried about the cost benefit, not making it worth it. And also the underlying attitudes and assumptions of discontentedness with what God has given us, whether we're talking about the scriptures or we're talking about our body's ability to be fertile, to be fruitful and multiply, or to to do our part of the being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it, you know, it, All of a sudden, those who say, no, no thanks, I'll pass, are regarded very much the way that if you listen to Elon Musk and some of these other futurists talk, those who decline becoming cyborgs will be treated by those who uh, happily welcome the upgrades as they see it. Hey, let's disable this. Let's enable that. Let's swap that part out. Now you're the bionic man. What about this guy over here who's 100% all organic? Yeah, what a chump. I'm evolved and you are not. And then very quickly, we find that we are in exactly the same frame of mind that the Nazis were in. And I know that this is going to just blow a lot of people away. But we have to really think about the kinds of attitudes that we're embracing here. What persuaded the Nazis that what they were doing with the Jews in World War II and the Holocaust, the rounding up people who were mentally ill or physically ill, chronically ill, insane, and then extinguishing them, terminating them. What convinced the Nazis that that was okay, if not necessary? Well, it was this, that they believed they were superior and that they were saving humanity by getting rid of the riffraff. So then... The flip side of this, the other half of church indeed, 
The other half of church indeed is when everything is psychologized, the self is psychologized, read Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl R. Truman. When everything is psychologized, especially ourselves, and then psychology is sexualized, and then sexuality is politicized, very quickly we find that we are lost. We took a wrong turn, and we didn't mark the path, and now we're just going in circles in the dark, magical forest. Where were we going? Who are we? How did we get here? Haven't I seen that tree three times today? Actually, I think I've seen this exact same tree. I'm going to tie a ribbon to it this time. And oh, in two hours, I'm going to see that exact same ribbon again, because I have no idea where I'm at or how I got here or how to get out. Now, this is, again, to be very, very clear, this is not at all what I have any reason to suppose Michael Hendricks and Jim Wilder are shooting for. But then neither were the German intellectuals necessarily aiming to produce the Nazi party and the atrocities of World War II. It's important to remember that prior to World War I and World War II, Germany was the most advanced industrial nation on the planet. They had the best schools, the best professors, the best scientists, the best experts, the best tech. They were the most advanced nation in the world. And pride went before destruction and a haughty look before a fall. And they reimagined theology according to the latest science because they thought that they were so much smarter than everybody who had gone before. They started talking about the historical Jesus and treating him like just another man. Let's be critical about what we read in the scriptures. And let's start denying that these things are actually literally true, or true really in any sense, except for the imaginary when we view these as primitive people compared with ourselves. And then you start mixing in evolutionary thinking, and before you know it, you're justifying in your own mind, silencing, disenfranchising, driving from places of authority, those who have been deemed inferior, genetically, emotionally, mentally, physically, for the greater good. So it doesn't start out in an obviously dark, sinister mode. It starts out with trying to help people. But how are you helping people? And what are the presuppositions inherent to your helping of people? And then as those have time to percolate, germinate, ferment, what will happen when we drink it? (laughs) Will it turn? Will it make us sick? You know, there's this trend that I notice, and I've talked recently about Christian music, and I've been reading a number of Christian books here lately, some fairly popular and some not necessarily as much. And also, too, in my last episode, I was talking about Jordan Hall and his issues and those who aligned themselves with him publicly and then quietly stopped referencing him but didn't state their reasons publicly. Therefore, they set up people who are under him to be abused for years, to be intimidated, bullied, threatened for years, harassed, destroyed in some sense for years. You know, and I'm I'm reading this book and I finished it and I had to make myself finish it on principle 
But I'm reading this and all this psychologized language of narcissism, the toxic spread of narcissism. And I, I think I might have actually literally cringed at a certain point in reading the other half of church every time they would use the word narcissist. In part, not because, <laughs> not to be clear, not because I doubt that there are narcissists. No, there definitely are. There definitely are narcissists. But where there's this move away from using the biblical term, I have to question why. And then also, simultaneously, they kept using this word hased. And for the life of me, I can't remember how they define it as being translated in our English Bibles. It's at the beginning of the book that they tell us what hased actually is. But then they just start using the word hased. Hey, we told you what hased is, and now we're going to spam that word to justify everything else that we are advocating and what we're arguing. And at a certain point, it just feels very, very gimmicky to use the word hased because that's what's in the original manuscript, despite the fact that we translate it into English with a different word. It feels a little bit like you're just trying to be original, I guess, clever, I guess. But then there's an opposite principle at play to prefer the word narcissist. So we're going to use a psychologized term to describe somebody who is selfish, self-absorbed, self-indulgent, self-important. To use the words and the terms that are more spiritual in nature, that get at the fact that this is a sinful nature problem, not just a psychological imbalance, chemical imbalance You know, again, going back to the problem with Jordan Hall, the only thing that FBC Sydney has admitted to publicly thus far is that he had a Xanax addiction and that disqualified him. They knew he was taking Xanax for years. They knew it for years. And I will tell you this flat out. It was not the Xanax addiction that caused them to finally remove him from the pastorate and caused Protestia to finally remove him from Protestia, and caused Chris Rosebro and Justin Peters and Phil Johnson to finally come out publicly and warn their audiences and their churches about Jordan Hall. No, 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 no. No, it wasn't Xanax. But see, that's the problem with psychologizing everything. Everything's a chemical imbalance. You know, in the South, there's this phrase, the devil made me do it. No, 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 no. The devil didn't make you do it. He, the devil may have tempted you, maybe, but your own sinful nature, your own sinful desires enticed you. You wanted something that wasn't yours because you're a sinner, because you're wicked. If it was just the Xanax that made you do it, well, then what do you have to repent of? The Xanax should repent. If it's narcissism, and we're going to psychologize this, We're going to prefer the psychological term and the psychological defining of what's at fault here. At a certain point, we're going to start saying that God's word is insufficient, and it has been insufficient for Christians for 2,000 years. And also, too, there's a little bit of a self-promotion here. I'm sorry, but there is to say 2,000 years of Christian testimony, Christian life and thought, These guys, they didn't know. 
we know, I know, buy my book, and then buy my other book, and then buy my other book, and then pay my organization a whole bunch of money, I'm sure, to come in and work with your staff at your mega church or your Christian college or your university or your 501c3 or whatever. Pay us a whole bunch of money to come in and teach you neurotheology. I cringe. I just, I cringe. Because which word is put first? Neuro. And not for no reason. <clears throat> you lead with neuro. But it's, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm trying to be consistent here, but I have the same discomfort with this that I have with social justice. You tack the word social onto the beginning of justice and you have not improved or upgraded justice. You've corrupted it. You tack neuro on the front of theology and you have not improved or upgraded theology. You've corrupted it. Now, this is not to say that you can't study neuroscience and theology to the glory of God. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is you can't put the two together and make the neuroscience into the horse and make the theology into the cart. That's backwards. What we have as a precedent and as an example in principle and on a sound principle for hundreds of years where theology was the queen of the sciences. Can that go too far the other direction? Yes. But look at where we're at right now. We are not in a situation where science is dominated by the Roman Catholic Church. You know, somebody comes out with a theory that actually, based on my observations, my calculations, my studies, my researches, my pondering this very carefully, I don't think that the sun, the moon, the stars, the other planets in our solar system revolve around the Earth. No, I think actually the Earth and the other planets revolve around the sun, our star. And then everybody loses their mind because they had been teaching things as the official position of the church, claiming that this has to be the truth because we said so, and now our reputations are all wrapped up in it, and now our offices and our standing and our position, our authority is threatened if you disprove us. We think we're so much better than the men who were involved in that controversy, and we're not. We think we are so much better, but it's chronological snobbery, and it's George Santayana. The lesson we learn from history is that nobody learns from history. <laughs> so all of this is to say, <clears throat> I don't mean to be a stick in the mud. I really don't, but I didn't like this book. I think it's dangerous. I think it's not dangerous to study neuroscience. It's definitely not dangerous to study theology, but humility is needed in both. If you're studying just theology, you need humility. You really, really do. And you will get it if you're sincere. You will be humbled by theology. You need humility to study neuroscience. And I, I think more humility was needed here, especially in trying to combine theology and neuroscience and what proves that to my mind, the fact that you're calling it neurotheology. <laughs> that in and of itself is a gimmick, and it's an uncareful one, and we need to be more careful, dare I say it. Lastly, before I go, 
I should go. I'd like to share with you a quote from Polybius, ancient Greek historian writing sometime, I think between the first and second centuries BC about the circumstances which contributed to the rise of the Roman Empire. I'm reading his The Histories right now, just started yesterday. And I really liked this quote. I thought this was just brilliant. Polybius writes, He indeed who believes that by studying isolated histories, he can acquire a fairly just view of history as a whole, is, as it seems to me, much in the case of one who, after having looked at the dissevered limbs of an animal once alive and beautiful, fancies he has been as good as an eyewitness of the creature itself in all its action and grace. So that is to say, (laughs) imagine a scenario in which you go to a, a butcher's shop and Eastern Montana has lots of these. Colorado probably does too, but you go to the butcher's shop and somebody has shot a deer, let's say a mule deer to be more specific. And they gutted the animal out there on the prairie threw it in the back of the pickup, brought it to Craig's Meats, and they say, hey, Craig, would you mind processing this deer for us? Sure thing, buddy, pal, I don't know, whatever. They set to work. They hang the animal. They skin it. They quarter it. And you walk in after the quartering is complete before they've gotten down to actually making the individual cuts and back straps and roasts and whatever's going to be ground into burger meat. So here's a leg over there. There's a leg over there. There's a leg over there. Leg over here. Here's the midsection. There's the head and the cape and all that. And you make a remark that, wow, yeah, I think, uh, I think this is as good as actually having seen the animal out there grazing and frolicking and probably, you know, if it was the rut, probably dumb as a doornail chasing after the does, totally oblivious to the fact that I took shot after shot after shot at it before finally hitting it. One track mind during the rut. Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, it's probably probably just as well that I didn't go out with you, Bubba Joe. I got pretty much the gist of it. No, no, you didn't. (laughs) You didn't. If you had actually seen the animal, you would know the difference. If you had actually seen the animal out there when he was alive and frolicking with the females, uh, you would not say that. Well, so also, to some extent, where we get a little too clever, I think, with some of these sciences, we need humility. And we need to recognize some of these things we just will not know and understand until Christ returns or calls us home. Paul writes about this, writes to this effect when he says, we know in part, we prophesy in part, then we will know fully. When the perfect comes, the perfect does not come yet. Some people want to claim that that's the canon of scripture. I don't think so. I don't think that's a sound argument. Do we know fully even as we're fully known? No. We still see through a glass dimly. We still see through a glass dimly. So we should be humble. We should be patient with one another. But we should also be very careful not to be taken captive by vain and human philosophy. We should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we should be very careful 
not to be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, including when extra-biblical things are brought in and they fundamentally transform the scriptures in our minds instead of us bringing the scriptures to bear on those subjects, which is the proper order of operations. That's what it means for theology to be the queen of the sciences, in part. But as I said, I got to run. I got to leave it there. That's all the time I've got for this episode. Let me know what you think in the comments if you want to hit this post up tomorrow on Facebook, the Facebook page for The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. You can like and follow on there to see updates when I post new content. Share it to your friends quick and easily. Invite your friends to like The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Facebook as well. Follow me at thegarrettashleymulletshow.com. You can sign up for email alerts or whatever podcast platform you prefer, whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on right now, you can follow, subscribe, catch new content when it comes out. Hopefully it's an encouragement, thought-provoking. I may not always be right, but I will make you think. And hopefully that is a benefit and it builds you up as well. But I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.